This is Power 1 and 2 Digital, the Power Breakfast Show podcast series. Up at eight o'clock, and that's all good. You see, Champlain Auto Services. Quickly take a look what's happening traffic wise on the highways and the byways this morning. Yeah, if you're heading out from south, heading northbound, got some volume until you get to Shigaguanas. That's when your traffic starts towards the interchange. Usual spots at this time. Out of Mocha, out of Diggle Martin, pretty heavy this morning. Valencia, not too bad, it's eased up a bit. Uh, Eastern Main Road, lighter than yesterday. Right? Hope that helped you out. I got no accident to tell you about at this time. All right, let's get the results of our morning poll. And of course, we'll get our guests online. You already online. Well, we didn't have much votes coming in by phone because I, I think the message board was down. So we only no, had... No, message board is up. It is? Yeah. Okay. But you didn't call any votes from there? Yeah, I did. Wayne and CJ. Okay. So yeah, we have four Wayne people said, saying Wayne, yes. Yeah, Wayne said no. Alright. We had four people saying yes, that police officers should be held personally and um financially liable and two said no all right mm-hmm. four people said yes two said no all right so that's all that's our poll for today of course it'll stay up until tomorrow yeah all right let's welcome our guest online uh via zoom link as we stream on youtube good morning to the folks out on youtube mr darius Figuera, how are you i'm okay morning 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 how's the weather up on your side it started raining and it stopped. No, it seems that it stopped most places now, which we'll need. All right. Well, good morning to you. Of course, this morning, our morning pool. Uh, good morning to Dorothy. Um, Recording yeah. in progress. Thank you, Dorothy. Um, of course, Mr. Figuero, we asked this morning, our morning pool, and you could probably weigh in on it one time. Let me just get it here quickly. Uh, we asked, do you agree? with police officers being personally financially liable in malicious prosecution cases. We asked that in our poll this morning. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that, that is an issue that goes to the very heart of malfeasance in public office. So mm-hmm. if we insist that malfeasance in public office must be punished by law, 
then we have to seriously look at that. Yes, of course, um, we do have uh, Wendell, Stephen and Paul Richards with us this morning. But, well, well, Mr. Figuera, ex, um, what do you mean? I mean, is it that you're agreeing that they should pay, be liable or not? No, you see, malfeasance is, arises when you exercise your powers as a public officer, whether you be a politician, go all the way to a, any form of public official. So malfeasance arises when you use your power as a public official to bend the law. You break the law. You abrogate the rights of the person that you are in fact persecuting. Mm -hmm. So it's not prosecution, it's persecution. So the issue arises, can we afford to run a democracy in the 21st century and persons who are using the powers granted to them in public office have impunity in exercising these powers so that is a question that has now to apply to the length and breadth of persons exercising powers in a public office but you recognize you're still not answering the question our question is should the police officer be held financially liable, personally and financially liable. In other words, the state pays when, when people are found, when people are found innocent because of malicious prosecution by a police, the state pays, yes. not, the, not the police officer. And our question is, should the police officer be held um, personally liable? The question that arises, and that is why I cannot answer with all the requisite knowledge, of the operation of the law of liability. Presently, we have the old system where you are not, you don't face personal liability, but you certainly face disciplinary charges, and there is a structure by which you can be disciplined. What, a transfer to next station? No, there's a structure by which if those in authority so desires, you can even be dismissed from the police service. So the question that arises, and now I get down to the nitty-gritty of it. Are we talking about personal liability now as a classic plaster on the saw because the internal disciplinary method of the TTPS has collapsed for years and it has grown to a halt. The system of the internal tribunals. So when you face disciplinary charges, you this thing drags on for years. And in fact, it is one of the four horsemen of the TTPS apocalypse. <laughs> so if the disciplinary procedure is in fact working within the TTPS and people face speedy justice within the TTPS, the question now arises, do we need the plaster on the saw of personal liability or are the politicians in fact bringing this issue of personal liability to continue to uh, refuse to fix the collapsed nature of the internal disciplinary mechanism of the TTPS? Why can't you have both? Why can't the internal disciplinary measures 
be effective, but also the state not be found liable if you go beyond the ambits of the law and and criminally and and maliciously prosecute somebody. Because at the end of the day, the police could the police internal mechanism could happen, you know, but the state has still had a call for the money to pay whoever they, they maliciously prosecute. But then you see that raises the question of double jeopardy. How many times can you punish somebody for a crime? Two one three times? I don't know that double jeopardy applies in this case. Yes, because you have a disciplinary procedure that you must face in which you can lose your job. Yeah. So if you are now imputing personal liability and you are facing now a tribunal that has the power to dismiss you, isn't that double jeopardy? Well, it does not still exist now with somebody with with a family being able to proffer um their own civil civil case civil charges against you. The question arises, which has to be looked at, is does the victim have the right under civil law to sue you for damages? Quite possibly, I don't know. A lawyer will have to indicate that. That is the issue. Because you have the right to sue you as an individual for damages. It's a different dimension from the double jeopardy of being forced to pay. And you are also brought up on disciplinary charges. Uh, I guess an attorney would have to tell us. I want to yeah. move into the, the substantive topic. And start with the revelation by the Minister of National Security in the Senate yesterday that 108 legal firearms have been found to be involved in crimes, including four murders. I'm sure this doesn't surprise you. <laughs> At all, no. Because what happens, eh, the entire mechanism of for granting FULs in the 21st century is still the same as the British left it in 62. And when you have a policy that walks into place to literally share out FULs within a restricted period of time, and you have this old 1962 system that does not enable proper oversight you are now asking for trouble you are asking therefore that the persons who have been granted fuls police themselves and it, as we all know with human nature it don't work so so it is open to a series of abuses which are now coming out so if we want those who are in the society calling that you must share guns like sweetie, but do not bother themselves with coming to grips with that if we intend to share guns like sweetie, where is the oversight to ensure a disciplinary, disciplined use of these guns? Why is the oversight to ensure that the leakages from the legal market to the illicit market is properly 
surveilled and controlled. Because the more you pump into the legal market, the greater the risk of leakages into the illicit market. That is a fact of life. Yeah, that, that, that is something we pointed out this morning. The next thing we must understand is that, he, is that whether your gun is legal or illegal, you need and demand services for that weapon. It has to be serviced. It has to be maintained. It has to be reliable. You have to have shots for it, etc. When you pump guns, when you expand rapidly the legal gun market, you therefore create a demand for these services. And a whole series of businesses arise to supply services to these legal guns. So therefore, we have to also surveil this service market for the illegal guns because there will be leakages into the illicit gun market because illegal and illicit guns always demand gunsmiths a gunsmith is a, a effective and efficient gunsmith in the gun market of Trinidad and Tobago is a prized individual they command respect and resources from all sectors. So the more you expand the legal market and you create this demand for services, people move to fill the services, you create the amount of skilled people who can also now provide services to the illegal market. So do you agree with Senator Dealsing, Dr. Dealsing, who in the Senate yesterday indicated that he thinks and I'm quoting, he asked the government not to quote-unquote punish people for seeking to own firearms. He said, quote, everyone should be given an equal opportunity now to own a firearm and get proper training. He said, uh, quote, I'm trying to figure out what is the government's hesitancy or problem with getting people firearms. And this is the part that kind of make my eyebrows. It's just like a car. I don't think it's just like a car. If you have a license, I can buy five cars. If I went through the checks and balances, which are better than what obtains in the U.S., we have to look at permission for sp from spouses, psychological assessment, police examine your home, certificate of police character, etc. Once persons have those in checks, you give them firearms. Because even trained people like police officers can get accidental or negligent discharges. Do you agree with that sentiment? That sentiment arises with an expression of grave fear. And it is, in fact, trading on fear. But sadly, it is trading on fear of a specific race group and a specific male of the race group who has now become to epitomize the quantum predator. So it is, in fact, a race-charged fear. And the, this ideal predator that comes from specific spaces in the geography of Trinidad and Tobago. But the fundamental reality... Why is are you calling that person? Because I'm presuming, please correct me if I'm wrong, that the person, this archetype that you're describing, is a predator type. Why Why describe that person as a predator who is seeking to have a firearm, in, in my opinion? I no, guess no, it, wait, I'm talking about the, the archetype the, the, the ideal predator 
the image of the ideal predator that drives the hysteria in Trinidad and Tobago. Okay, all right. It's race-based. So mm -hmm. what is happening? So faced with this, the, the tsunami of crime, we, we are, certain individuals are calling for sharing out guns in a vacuum. And when I listen to them, what I note carefully is that they really don't know nothing about the life. They are ignorant of the game. Because what is happening, you have called in that statement yesterday to share out a carbine handgun and a shotgun. What? Why are you going to share out a smooth bore pistol like if it was the days of Henry Morgan and Francis Drake to people? For what purpose? They are entering an, a gun war with a knife. That does not solve the problem. That escalates the violence of the engagement to the detriment of the person who is holding that smoothbore pistol in their hand. So, the solution that is really being called for is the right to bear arms. Mm -hmm. That is what they want. The right to bear arms. And the right to bear arms to defend themselves from this, spe this specific model of a predator. I mean, you're talking around, but what you're really suggesting is that the the call and i agree i agree with you because that was my sentiment this morning i disagree totally with the philosophy of it that you think the solution is more people having guns in their hands in a very small country when you look at what the right to bear arms has happened has, has facilitated in the u.s and that's a big country when the real issue is people fearing that the ttps or the law enforcement agencies cannot curtail crime so you want to the right to bear arms to protect yourselves which i don't think is the solution but you see, what happens is that bearing arms escalates violence. So when you are bearing arms and any form of conflict that you encounter, you dip for your gun and you solve the problem. <laughs> bearing the arm turns you into a specific type of individual with a specific frame of mind. So there's no need for conciliation. A potential I, killer then. Yes, it turns you, you pack in. Yeah. We see it with the, with the so-called road rage now. And people are telling you flat that they are, are totally afraid now to get into any form of conflict with anybody, whether in the supermarket or in the car park or the road or anywhere, because you don't know who packing, whether legal or illegal, and they just pull it out and wave it at you. Mm -hmm. And what stops them from pulling the trigger? Yeah. And that will increase the fear of violence in the society because what people understand well is that those with legal firearms love to wave it around mm -hmm. more than the quote-unquote bad boys. That That is a fact. <laughs> they just love to show it off because they have this 
image in their mind that that makes them manly, <laughs> dominant, invincible, invincible, and that <laughs> is why they always use it in conflict with. Well, to me, what was also interesting about the statement is that is, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, the, the comparison to a driver's license. And if you have a driver's license, you can get three, four cars. And almost equating that with owning a gun and having multiple firearms, if you have a license, to me, it's a very disturbing sentiment. You see, that is what it, com it comes from. It comes from a, a worldview where you insist that you are besieged. Well, maybe you're besieged. I have no problem with people feeling that way because in society presently, when you have over 500 murders, the years hurtling towards 600, I can understand the fear and anxiety for one's safety, but I don't understand that as the solution. Well, when, when you insist that you are besieged, you start gravitating towards extremism yourself. Because what is, it, what is really being called for and, and which will not be articulated in public by the those who are insisting on arming the victims, is that what they are really looking for is social cleansing. Cleansing of a specific type of people who they deem to be the threat. So in other words, what they are really looking for is a Trinidad and Tobago Bolsonaro. Well... I do want to ascribe that to the goodly gentleman, that I, I prefer to earn the side of caution with the sentiment that when I'm trying to protect myself as opposed to, well, I want to cleanse a certain section of the society. Even if, if, even if they, I, I, I ascribe that category to the criminal element. You know, I, th I think it's a stretch to feel that because I want a, a gun to, to protect myself and my family, that it naturally lends itself that I want to be a vigilante of sorts. No, you see, you see, what what I am speaking about is the, is the after listening to people react and their concept of this, who is the violent ones and the predator, the predator class, and the solutions they propose. I'm not talking about no specific individual. I'm talking about a political position you hear being articulated in the society, especially among the middle class. And what it is in fact calling for is social cleansing. So this is nothing to do with an individual. What do, you, what, do you, what do you mean by social cleansing? I don't want to misinterpret. What do you mean by that? Social cleansing is eliminating the threat by any means necessary. So that is what I'm talking about. That is the social cleansing they are talking about. So therefore, they are calling for a, a style of policing where you literally cleanse what they call the criminal element. So it has nothing about, about, about rule of law. It has nothing about innocent until, until proven guilty. What it is, is cleansing the threat and you listen to them talk you shut your mouth and you listen and you listen and you realize that is where they are going 
So, so are you suggesting that there's an undertone of vigilantism coming from that sort of sentiment? No, vigilantism involves you personally taking on the task of doing it yourself. What they are calling for are agencies of state under political control will now do the cleansing. You lose me there because I don't know how we go from wanting to own personal gun licenses to persons trying to influence agencies of state to go beyond the ambits of the law. I'm no, lost. What they are looking for is a political solution, a specific brand of politics that will now embrace the cleansing of the threat. And, and what is the real source of the threat in your opinion? Because it's very easy to think the threat is the the little black boy on the street with the gun, he's part of the threat. There's no doubt about that. But are we really focusing on the real source of the threat in Trinidad and Tobago? No. Because this... And, and what is the real source of the threat? This entire reality that we are living in today jumps out from the drug trade transnational organized crime and what is going on in that reality, how it impacts us. Every single time Trinidad has, has experienced a spike in the annual murder toll is because of developments within transnational organized crime and the illicit drug trade in Trinidad and Tobago. So if you refuse to understand that reality, you will continue to blame. You will continue to blame the system, the symptoms, sorry, and never focus on the dynamic that generates the system. What is the most significant change in the operation of transnational drug and gun owning operations in the last two, three years in the, in the Caribbean and specifically Trinidad Tobago? Well, what is the, the, the first the dramatic change in the business model is that now you have transnational organized crime that is involved in, in, in multiple business pursuits to maximize wealth. The illicit trades that we hear a lot of advertisements on, on, on the media about, the cigarettes, the fake pharmaceuticals, the fake goods, the human smuggling, the dramatic expansion in the range of illicit drugs available on the streets of Trinidad and Tobago, especially the synthetic drugs, the dramatic change in the nature of the weaponry available on the streets of Trinidad and Tobago, exemplified with the smuggling of AR-15s from the United States of America. All of these throughout the Caribbean is the product of a new business model. And Trinidad and Tobago is showing all the symptoms of this new model in operation and this new, the dominance of this new model over the Caribbean. And we continue to refuse to want to understand this to then understand what is going on on the ground. So, for example, we talk... We, we, a pet subject now, and they call it the illicit trades. 
and they have now admitted that the illicit trade is now part of the same and dominated by the same drug trafficking organizations because it's a complex business model and if you are not ready at the level of your state agencies to deal with this sophisticated transnational organized crime operation then you're just spitting in the wind so when we see that's interest, interesting and i never thought of it that way but i guess you're, you're right when you when you kind of connect the dots the explosion of synthetic drugs being used in the entertainment field in the country over the last five or so years or possibly more is actually uh, a symptom or a sign of the change model it's not just because we keep looking at heroin and cocaine as we did 20 years ago it has expanded way past that now and the illicit, illicit drug trade is now partly encompassing that synthetic drug is it is it a transshipment issue is it a use use issue or is it both well, if yes if you all bear with me i'll give you a very short lesson on the mexican model the mexican model teaches that the, the the illicit drugs that you make the highest profit on are synthetic drugs drugs that you don't depend upon a plant-based alkaloid to turn into a end product like cocaine and heroin so the mexicans specialize in synthetic drugs the profit is way higher it is easier to smuggle and you can establish manufacturing bases close to your consumption points. So the appearance of synthetic drugs in Trinidad and Tobago and throughout the Caribbean is part of the business model because the Mexican business model states, teaches, as a business school does, that you have to maximize your transshipment markets. So in every market in the Caribbean that you are using to transship product to Europe and America and Asia, you have to develop fully the illicit markets of that transshipment point to maximize wealth generation for your affiliates in that market. And that is why in the Caribbean, in Trinidad and Tobago, you see the cascading of synthetic drugs present on the market the molly the met especially right and you will you will the fentanyl etc etc and including a most viable one ketamine the horse tranquilizer mm -hmm. so we have the full range so you will have product, and this product is not only for local consumption, but this is for also transshipment. So that is the difference. You have to maximize your local market as you maximize your export market, your export pipelines to the major consumer markets. So we're going to continue to see more and more and more synthetic drugs being made available. It is the Mexican model that ended the ganja wars in Trinidad and Tobago. Explain it, that, Mr. Figure. We had an attempt 
by a group of persons to dominate the supply of ganja to the market to raise the price of ganja by creating shortages that resulted in a ganja war where people were being killed for a half pound mm -hmm. the mexicans came in and they unleashed supply flooded the market with product and at the same time key members of the group who were intent on creating that monopoly of the market suddenly fell by the wayside and now peace has returned to the ganja market of Trinidad and tobago the war is over yeah it's peace now so so that is the reality of how they run their business model and you see the the impact of that on the reality of Trinidad and Tobago and the availability of all these drugs now on the local market why has Trinidad and Tobago been such a soft target for the drug cartels well from from the second half of the 1960s when when they entered to now the Trinidad and Tobago state has never been outfitted and retooled to face the threat posed by transnational organized crime. The state has always been behind the curve. In many cases, not even playing catch up with transnational organized crime. Mm. Even, even during the era when Mr. Manning would have, would have initiated all these security measures, well, Mr. Manning started a process by which they were identifying crucial areas in which to intervene, intervene in. He called that faithful early election in 2010, and that was the end of that. Mm. But, you, but do you think he was getting anywhere with what he was doing? Well, what was happening with Mr. Manning is that he certainly understood and was articulating the nature of the trade then mm -hmm. and the threat then so given the nature of what they were saying then one expected a retooling of the state agencies to commence and we saw in the case of the ttps we saw that with the mastrowski plan mm -hmm. But but even Mr. Manning, who was able to, in some people's estimations, identify and corral some of the more visible players in the underground in Trinidad and Tobago, the, the, the this now infamous meeting at the at the what was it, the Holiday Inn? Mm -hmm. Back I'm then. But even while that happened, we still never heard about a consistent, forceful intervention of Mr. Big or the Mr. Biggs. The Why is that? The problem arises is that Mr. Manning was articulating a position, but his state agencies in which you must utilize to build a case were behind the curve, way behind the curve. Now, remember, we also had the creation of the SSA. 
that was an important step to create a civilian-based intelligence service. You mean the you mean the S A U T T SOT? No, the S S A. Well, yeah. the, the, wasn't SOT that, that what um the 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 one that was created with yeah. outside um outside intelligence to deal with those yes. particular issues. So we had the SOT, and then we had a specific agency created by legislation. That, that we call today the SSA, right? Which was charged as a civilian by by law, charged as a civilian agency to be to to collect intelligence on the drug trade. Mm-hmm. That was a specific remit. That was also created. Mm-hmm. The thought was a specific agency that was sub that was supposed to be configured to collect intelligence and create cases. Mm-hmm. Right? So it, it, uh, that so that was the specialty of sort. Mm-hmm. So sort was deeply involved in the collection of the intelligence, looking towards creating cases mm-hmm. and prosecution. Eventually, we know what happened to all of those. The SS. Why, why, why do you think, though, that those things were dismantled after Mr. Manning demitted office? Well, the SSA became heavily politicized. So, as one crew came in, they fired and appointed their crew, and then the next crew came in, they fired, and, re- and then appointed their crew. So the agency is now so politicized that it is totally shackled. Mm-hmm. The sort was literally disbanded on the grounds that it was in the shadows legally, mm-hmm. and it was disbanded. While in the aftermath of this banded sort, and, and the literal recreation of an of a new security apparatus. So after you dismantled what was left by Mr. Manning, and you went about the creation of a new security apparatus, what is going on in that period <laughs> with transnational organized crime? And they're laughing all the way to the bank. Yeah, well, naturally. <laughs> yes, because you you give them a buy. That's a buy you give them. And what happens with transnational organized crime, it evolves so rapidly that by the time you decide now to, to grapple with them, they have evolved now to into a new incarnation. What has happened now with this new incarnation is that what you have on the ground still playing catch-up with a manifestation of transnational organized crime that what it was in the days of Mr. Manning, but it's no longer so. Yeah. How, how many no gangs do so? you think are operating in Trinidad and Tobago now? And are these gangs now, the local gangs, that is, collaborating with Central American, regional South American gangs? There is. There never was in the history of gangland in Trinidad and Tobago an apex gang, a done 
who was not connected to transnational organized crime. It is their connection to transnational organized crime that created them as apex gangs and created the duns. The duns were not created by government contracts. In the 1990s, the politicians woke up one morning and realized that you now had duns in the heart of gangland, in the heart and brain of gangland in Trinidad and Tobago, who were now connected to, because of their connection to transnational organized crime, they were in no way begging the state to feed from its trough. So the, to come and offer them to play with ERP and government contracts was in fact an attempt to entangle them into the web of political patronage in the hope of controlling them. Because remember, they controlled space that represented on the ground huge tracts of voters when general elections are called. So that is the reality we must accept and face in Trinidad and move on. And the same reality obtains today. There are no apex gang organizations in Trinidad and Tobago today, no players in Trinidad and Tobago today who are not connected to transnational organized crime, either Mexican or Colombian. How infiltrated is the TTPS at this point? That is hard to say. That is hard to say. I don't really have an idea because persons in the game don't really talk to you about that. But I could tell you, it is the policy of the Mexicans to corrupt, not specifically your police. The Mexicans target your military to corrupt them. That is an operating policy of the Mexicans. They corrupt your military, your navy. Because they are the ones directly related to the transshipment issues. Thank you. And they are the ones, they are the ones that they turn into drug traffickers. Yeah. Because the Mexican policy is that they don't believe in bribes. They am, you come to them with services, they vet you, and they turn you into a drug trafficker in exchange for what you do for the organization and you are under the discipline of the organization and remember everybody who is an affiliate of the mexicans the mexicans take hostages they know where the members of your family are at every moment mm -hmm. and if you are ever arrested you plead guilty Shut your mouth and make your jail. <laughs> so you don't have this long, long dance with 
with top top lawyers and taking your case all to the privy council with the Mexicans, you take your jail and you sit down in jail and shut your mouth. Mm-hmm. Because the key word is discipline. Mm-hmm. Harshly enforced discipline in the ranks. And that is why they are such an intractable opponent. Interesting. Colombians don't have that discipline. Mm-hmm. You're painting a very bleak picture. <laughs> but well, a very true one. Yes. That is the reality on the ground. You speak to people on the ground and, it, and what I am talking today, people watch you in your face and tell you that. Mm-hmm. That is the reality on the ground that is spoken on the ground amongst people who know on the ground what is going on. Mm-hmm. What what opportunity did the pandemic provide to these operatives? Well, under the uh, under the pandemic, they simply consolidated their hold upon everything. Because as you concentrate on policing a pandemic, they just put in place the final touches to their dominance. Because all the import channels were wide open, the export channels were wide open, the police was there telling you to put on your mask and breaking up illicit party and things like that. And transnational organized crime had a field day. <laughs> if you want to see the effect of COVID in Europe, they had a field day in Europe too, because co- Europe is now cocaine land there. <laughs> That is the reality we face today. So, so this explosion of synthetic drugs we're seeing around the world in terms of use is really a direct result of what you describe as an evolution of the business model of drug cartels around the world. And we're seeing yes. it now in terms of use. But you can't use it if you don't get. Thank you. So, for example, the Mexicans have passed on the technology to the Nigerian traffickers. So right now, the Nigerian traffickers are manufacturing industrial-grade meth ice in Nigeria and other parts of the world and exporting it to Europe. So you become an affiliate, pass the technology on to you, you begin the production. So what you have going on in the world today, you have, you have drug trafficking organizations now who are multiple drug traffickers so you're not you're no longer a cocaine trafficker or heroin trafficker you traffic everything you give me a headache this one yes it's a a basket of illicit products you traffic so for example into europe and within europe you have affiliates of the mexicans who move cocaine heroin synthetic drugs who also traffic who smuggle cigarettes, arms, and who are also involved in cybercrime. So they rip off your credit cards, they scam the ATMs. And, 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 what of, and what of the cryptocurrency industry? Well, the, 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 crypto, the cryptocurrency industry is in fact a godsend for washing duty money. So that I've is, heard that. that I've heard that, but explain how. But what you do is that you 
you you you simply take the dirty money and you buy crypto and then you move wrong the, the the crypto and then you turn it back into clean money on all the exchanges they don't really care what type of crypto they're dealing all take your dirty money and you you put because what happens is that the money you generate from the sales you have to wash it and that that demands that you have couriers cash couriers whose only job is to move dirty money that at some time or another has to enter the, the legal financial process mm -hmm. so they must move the money to a financial center but with crypto you be that so that is that is that is one of the momentums to crypto Lara Segura, thanks for being with us this morning. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Thank I'm really depressed this morning, but it's all right. <laughs> yeah, boy. No Recording kidding. Recording stopped. All right, Mr. Darius Figueroa, thank you so much for being in the Power Breakfast Show on Power 1 Digital this morning. Thank um, you. All right. Have a great day. Have a good dry day. All the best. Thank you for choosing Power 1 2 Digital. Listen every weekday for our live show starting at 6 a.m. Remember, like, share, and subscribe. Power 102 Digital.